Our next speaker is Mr. Mick Wallace. Madness. madness. This is madness. We cannot fix a problem caused by capitalism with more capitalism. They hurt the people. I ended up at the end of a gun. On three occasions. I don't want to survive anywhere. Madame Daly will speak. A union which allows fiscal rules to be broken for arms expenditure, not for housing or to put roofs over the heads of people. This is evidence of police violence. Whether you're an economic migrant or you're an asylum seeker, nobody deserves to be treated like this. And even having the neck to suggest separating people from their mothers. How dare you? They don't need us to kick them around the place. You could say it so much. Please, in riot gear, we're trying to... I am ashamed to call myself a European. of Guaido. elected is an absolute embarrassment. No, you did use the word gobshite, so I would reprimand you over that. I'm back by popular demand, it seems. (laughs) (laughs) People wanted more, so here it is. (laughs) Well... I mean, Cork is taking over the country, isn't it? Slowly. Slowly and surely. Only according to themselves. Is it? Yeah, I think so, yeah, yeah. No one else saying it, no? No. Of course, the dubs still think they're on the country, do they? I don't know. Well, you, the whole you've, been a, you've been a dub. The whole centre of the country does seem to be focused around Dublin uh, and has been for a long time, which, as you know, was a feature of the very good meeting we had with a lot of the rail advocacy groups uh, located around the country. That was a strong theme from all of them. Yeah, well, look, at it. It's a tr- it is true that Ireland is probably the most centralised country in Europe and uh, it's been very problematic because um, obviously it's it's pretty much linked to the fact that we are too dependent on foreign direct investment to provide good jobs. And while years ago there was a, there was a, sp- a bit of a spread on them uh, in the last number of years, anyone's come, anyone that have been coming uh, don't want to be more... They want, to, they want to be less than an hour from Dublin Airport. And also, since most things are in Dublin, they want to be close to that. And the country has become more and more centralised and uh, the provinces have been abandoned to a great degree. Uh, towns and villages have been abandoned. Fishing villages are, are being decimated. And uh, obviously the rail people reflected that. And one of the reasons that um, the... Rail in Ireland uh, has is so poor. I mean, we we it's probably no exaggeration to say we have the worst public transport in Europe. Well, we definitely have the worst rail network in Europe, and uh, we we seem to be more eager to close lines than to actually open lines and, and build new ones that are needed. Well, it's completely out of sync with thinking in Europe, which was why we had the meeting. I mean, last year was the European Year of Rail. There's a lot of stuff in the media now that people would have seen about reopening and reinventing the night trains across Europe and really popularising that idea. A number of member states would have banned or are in the process. Well, France has banned um, short haul flights where there is a high speed rail equivalent. And we have a rail review in Ireland. The closing date is this week. But actually, the outcome is probably preordained already and that they're focusing on the interurban routes rather than developing a comprehensive rail strategy for Ireland as a whole. And I mean, there is European money there. We're an island on the periphery of Europe. Rail is the only way forward if we're to have any chance of meeting kind of green targets and it has to be promoted in a much more serious way. So we're looking forward to working with the lads in the coming um, months and, and years to really champion the idea of rail in a way in which forces the, the politicians to actually reverse the or break through the intransigence that seems to exist among the civil servants or 
whoever to block rail and not see it as a viable alternative when it's the only one really. Yeah, and the lads were going out of their way last night. I mean, they pointed out that um, one of the reasons that people are not into rail at home is because the services are so bad. And you would actually think, they were pointing out that you'd, you'd think that they were putting the times... Uh, putting on trains at times that deliberately didn't suit people almost. Uh, mm. They have done nothing to make it attractive. And, and that's a big problem. Whereas, I mean, uh, in Belgium, for example, there's over 100 trains a day between Brussels and Bruges. Over 100 a day. Mm. I mean, that's a service. That's a mm. real service. Uh, Brussels, Louvain, I remember looking up one time, I had to go there for a meeting. Uh, there are 67 trains mm. in every 24 hours. Mm. 67 trains between the two cities every 24 hours. Mm. Now, having said that, uh, it should be pointed out that while you know we're able to use rail a lot, I mean, we we came down from uh, Brussels um, on the train to Strasbourg this week, and uh, we're actually going to Milan uh, tomorrow uh, on the train as well. Yeah. And uh, you know, I mean, but having said that. Uh, it should be pointed out that uh, what has been prioritised in Europe is um, connecting the big cities and some of the regional stuff in Europe has been abandoned as well and uh, a lot of the decisions have been made to suit business more so than uh, the general public uh, in the provinces and that's something mm. that should be addressed in Europe too. Mm. But obviously that's amplified in Ireland where... Uh, because there's been so little interest from successive governments uh, in the provinces around the country, uh, it has left. The, it has meant that they've shown no real uh, appetite for doing anything about uh, the poor rail system. Mm, mm, it's definitely a mindset, and as we were saying to the lads, the only way of breaking through it is through people power, which is the only real way of organising things, anyway. Because, yeah, yeah. Mean, other than that, you have ministerial capture. Like, they made the point that when they met with Eamon Ryan first, he was all, oh, that's great, yeah. And then after no, that, nothing, because presumably his civil servants surrounded him. Now, as far as I'm concerned, that's not good enough for Eamon Ryan either. Uh, you know, the Greens are around long enough to know what the tasks are hand on. And, you know, if you're going to be a minister, you have to be prepared to break through that. But obviously, they've shown themselves to not be that. They weren't the last time they are in government and not this time. So they need to be pushed along with all, all of the political establishment to really put this centre stage. But if this, if this Irish Rail Review is a done deal before it even starts, I mean, that's depressing. And it reminds me of uh, the NAMA... Uh, investigation that's going on with Judge Cook uh, for over five years now and I mean my god it's like as if uh, we do these reports and reviews in Ireland sometimes and the main the main purpose is to make sure that nothing happens mm. uh, which is shocking mm. so as you might have gathered we are coming to you live from Strasbourg the first plenary of 2022 um, how has it been so far Oh, the, the, the plenary of Macron. Exactly, I mean, yeah, since French. we got here, we might have got down here on the train, but since we've been down here, there's been nothing but police and security and a big hoo-ha around. Uh, obviously, this is, well, January was the start of the French presidency. As people know, the presidency of the European Union rotates every six months. France have it this six months and it happens to coincide with the French presidential elections. So this is actually going to be a big deal and it was a big deal for Macron. He was here twice this week, first on 
the Monday night for the commemoration service for our former president, David Sassoli. We had mentioned last week about David's sad uh, death over Christmas, but they had a two-hour ceremony for him on Monday, which I have to say, well, we were both saying it is really, they need a few Irish people now to organise a bit of a commemoration because it was the dullest, most boring thing I ever heard. Like the same people getting up in a wooden speech you got no sense of the person. There was beautiful music. And everyone, well, we were praying, God, would you keep the music on and tell the lads to kind of button it? But there were just these wooden speeches. No idea like that you'd have in Ireland the funny story of I met David on this or the little sad tale or something nice and personal. Nothing like, you know, and Macron spoke at that as well. Well, nobody does funerals better than the Irish. And um, I think it's great that funerals... uh, are so important to the Irish, and uh, I think the uh, the shutdown on on funerals uh, during COVID, I think it brought home to the Irish more than ever before how important it yeah. is to the Irish. I mean, it's a funeral in Ireland um, because obviously the, the funeral of a young person uh, is incredibly sad on all occasions, uh, but when an old person who has lived their full life uh, passes away, the funeral then is an opportunity to celebrate the life. And it isn't just about closure, it's about celebration of a, of a, of a life lived. And uh, nobody does it better than the Irish. Mm. Yeah, I think it's that mixture of laughing and crying that nobody else does, you know. And certainly, like, it was wooden, wasn't it? Yeah. But anyway, look at... I mean, they had the ceremony, the music was great, fair play. I think there were the Strasbourg Orchestra who were there at that. And, of course, we elected a new president. Uh, people would have seen it. It got a lot of coverage. Roberta Metzola, uh, a Maltese young woman. She's only... She was 43 today. She was elected, long-standing MEP, um, from the EPP group, which Fine Gael are in. She's a capable woman. I mean, she's competent. And, you know, she's on a committee with you, isn't she? Yeah, she was the coordinator on Libe before on the Civil Liberties Committee. Very personable, nice woman. Um, yeah, she's... And I have to say, she was very competent in her mm. dealings and she uh, presented, I thought her pitch was quite, you know, she was trying to include everybody. So she came across as pretty competent. And as we were saying, same Raid McGuinness now is pretty... Sorry that she didn't stick around because yeah, she uh, had a good chance of being. She would have. She would have been elbowing Roberto yeah, Mazzola out of the way anyway, or trying to yeah. at least to get yeah, that yeah. position. No, I'd know? say uh, Mairead McGuinness would have been practically automatic, given that she was the yeah, first yeah. vice president, exactly, and, yeah. and she was the number one for EPP. Uh, two and a half years She's been ago. There for how many years now? Is it, is it 15 years? Oh, at least, yeah. yeah. And you see, it was Roberta Metzola had become a vice president when Marae right, exactly, moved yeah, to the commission, position, you yeah. know. So then it kind of, she, yeah. she's had a big leap forward. But that was kind of because Manfred Weber, the German head of the EPP group, kind of uh, balked at it. He, 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 it, he yeah. bottled it and pulled out and sort of didn't contest it because he'd been promised it the last time and that kind of went pear-shaped on him. So he, he bottled it and, and didn't stand for it. So it well, ended what, up with Roberto Mazzola. Well, when you say he bottled it, I mean, why did he pull out? Like? Did, did Probably he wasn't going the last to time, Yeah, well, they see, the last time he was kind of promised it and it all kind of exploded yeah. in a big mess. And I it's think... I kind of realised he didn't like him, I think. Yeah, he didn't. He, just, he didn't want to put himself through that embarrassment again. So, I mean... But there's still men in the leader of uh, the group. But he's still the know, leader of the group, you know, yeah. Yeah, it's a title more than anything. Well, yeah. he gets he gets this he gets well, the he does, but he he's gets German the... in, and he's in that group, and they're the biggest yeah. country in that group, you know, Merkel's party and all that. But look, I mean, I think what it was was they nominated for. I mean, 
it sounds disrespectful to say she's the least worst, but she was the most acceptable to all the middle ground coming from a small country. She wasn't coming from any camp yeah. and she's capable and competent and she's a personable woman and, you know, obviously we wish her all the best. But I mean, that wasn't the big gig yeah. in Strasbourg yeah, was yeah. Macron arriving for his State of the Nation speech yesterday. I, I, I would say that if... Biden had come and the Pope on the same day, there wouldn't have been as many police in Strasbourg. It was, they were everywhere. Yeah, My God. I'd, I'd love to know what it cost uh, just to move Macron. I presume he came from Paris, but the security forum uh, in Strasbourg, I don't know what it was like on the way down, but I mean, my God, it must cost a fortune. Yeah. And we no. only saw one fellow with a banner trying to put up his banner somewhere and the police tell him to get over across the road, probably across the German border nearly, you know. <laughs> so I don't know who they were protecting him from, but obviously everyone hates him. Well, sadly, not enough to not get him elected well, this yeah, time. I mean, yeah, he's going to get elected. Oh, God. Um, what a, oh, God. So yeah, what, what do you think of his speech? You didn't, didn't sit well with you? Mick? <laughs> well, first of all, well, he, he was here on Monday as well. Uh, yeah. for the uh, commemoration to uh, Sassoli mm. and he spoke at that and he was obviously very mild-mannered uh, at the ceremony but yesterday in fairness to him right, he spoke for a half an hour um, for, of an introduction and then, and then he answered questions uh, for three and a half hours right now when he spoke for the half hour I actually thought his presentation was very strong yeah, yeah. and I was I, I hadn't realised that he's well able to speak. He's a good speaker. Now what he was saying was nonsense, right? and I disagreed <laughs> with ninety uh, percent of what he was saying. But he, I, I have to say that he presented it well. Yeah. Uh, but then I noticed when he was answering, you know. Uh, There'll be a round of, of questions then where, all, well, first of all, all the leaders of the groups got, got to challenge him on stuff and then he an, then he would answer and then others would get a chance and he'd answer them. But when he was answering back, while he was uh, addressing, he was answering everybody's pints, right? But he was doing it in a way, he was kind of deflating at the questionnaire in the first place and it was more deadpan where his original presentation was very strong. Yeah. He wasn't strong in his responses, but yeah, at the same time, what he was really doing was putting them, putting down the people that were put, uh, putting the questions to him, especially the ones criticising him. Yeah, I mean, I think people have to realise that the presidency doesn't have a huge amount of time for manu- space for manoeuvres. So they're really taking up the work programme of the commission for that six months out of the term. So there'll be legislative files which will be due to be completed and so on and they'll be at the helm of that. So they have to work within that. So it's not the idea that every country when it becomes, it takes the president, reinvents the wheel. They're really just responsible for stewarding whatever legislation is there. Now I did think his pitch was interesting. Like he came out and he is a good speaker. He wouldn't be where he was today if he wasn't. And he started the usual waffle about how how great Europe is. you know, and that the three things that cut us out are democracy, progress and peace, you know, and then he tried to deal with each of those. These are the promises that we gave to our people kind of thing, you know, and these are, you know, uh, these are now under threat. Democracy is what cuts us out from the rest of the world. You know, he says uh, the rule of law, though, can be fragile and we have to defend and protect these. Do you know what I mean? Now, they've singled out rule of law a couple of times and I thought his speech was there was a couple of sort of kicks to Poland and Hungary without naming them, 
which to me was by singling out that rule of law stuff and saying, I strongly support the right to abortion and then all the, yay, you know, from the renews and the S&Ds and all this come up and say, and then the, the far right kind of is, are put in their place a bit. But that, that's just a game he was playing. I mean, the bottom line here is, let's be honest about it, and we brought out our booklet on rule of law and fundamental rights in the Europe in the European Union. And one of the countries we targeted for a critique was France. Because emergency legislation in France suppose, against terrorism and so on has become permanent, really violating the civil liberties of people, particularly the Muslim population who are well, the- racially scapegoated at every turn. It's actually institutionalised in France, French law. Like, And Macron has stood over that. Not only stood over, but he's whipping it up. And I mean, we'll mention in a minute some of his points around asylum, which were scary as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, the French are institutionalising uh, racism against the Muslim uh, community and they're getting away with it. And they talk about uh, fighting racism and uh, he talked about migrants. But, I mean, uh, their their main focus on dealing with migrants is uh, through Frontex and it's, it's, through, it's all about uh, blocking them from coming in, uh, sending back people that they don't want here. Uh, while the French are still happy uh, to sell arms uh, to bad regimes all over the world. They're happy to support US imperialism that helps to cause an awful lot of the migrants and refugees in the first place. Um, And they're at it themselves down in the Sahel. And he he talked about the Sahel as if France was actually doing something good down there, whereas in actual fact, there's over 5,000 troops uh, down in the Sahel, mostly in Mali and Niger. And they're literally there to make sure that France can access cheap uranium. Uh, people will know that uh, 75% of French electricity comes from nuclear and uh, just over 50% of the uranium that's used to produce uh, all that electricity comes from Niger. And uh, they get it at a cheap price because they're down there. Uh, it's kind of, Colonialism is alive and well there. Uh, but uh, And then there's a thing called the the, the African franc, uh, and which the French control. The French actually control uh, the currency in 14 countries in Africa, and they make money off it every day in every country. It is on blatant exploitation. But yet Macron was there yes, yesterday talking about about their role in Africa as if it was a positive one when in actual fact it is 100% exploitation. What was pretty scary was like he talked a lot and this is one of the priorities of the French presidency is defence and security like of the union, you know. So he mentioned cyber attacks, he mentioned terrorist attacks and then immediately after that said an illegal migration. And then he moved to dealing in detail with illegal and this is completely and utterly wrong. It's a violation of civil rights and should never be done conflating migration with terrorism. Now, that is just racism and that is what they do. And he was doing it all the time. And as you said, Mick, his response was, well, we're going to deal with this. We're going to beef up Frontex, the European border control. We're going to change Schengen, which is the free movement agreement uh, and arrangement around Europe. We're going to have a rapid intervention force that can go into countries to stop if there's a rush somewhere 
That's probably in response to the Belarus type thing. And we're going to build up relations with countries of origin. In other words, our thing is we're going to keep them out and send them back any ones who managed to get in. And that's his whole uh, focus. He kept going on about illegal migration and that's obviously plain to his audience. And we did find that the whole debate was framed in the context of the French presidency. So he was kicking yeah. the far right, uh, trying to outdo them on some of the racism migration issues, appealing to the middle ground by talking about abortion. Um, you know, but the, it was the nauseating hypocrisy like of talking about solidarity. That is the hallmark of our Europe. We have exported as a gift, vaccines as a gift. When Europe has oh, blocked the oh, releasing of yeah. the TRIPS waiver that Terrible. would allow those countries produce the vaccine for themselves. So it was that kind of thing. I mean, it was a bit interesting, the... Um, the way the other groups dealt with it, because most of the other groups then put up a French person to say, reply. There's a lot of criticism online, especially from uh, your friend, the esteemed Mr. Uh, Bootyfucker. Um, he was criticising some of the candidates for using it as a platform to he used it, for he their own presidency. He was criticising his, his own, own, his, own his own member, yeah. But yeah. there's been, yeah, even, but even from other sources, there's been people saying that a lot of the thing was very cynical, just platforming for their own. Well, it's, it's funny now. Very obvious when he saw it. Or? We, we were we were late leaving the parliament last night, and as we were walking out, uh, we ended up talking to uh, a Green MEP, and she was shaking her head, and she was disillusioned, and she was saying, "Oh God," she says, "It's it's um, it's it's not a good start to the year," and she was talking about the Greens not being able to pull together and uh, the infighting and disagreements, okay. and obviously she was referring as well to. Uh, the booty coffers uh, criticism of who the of yeah, but the the French guy who spoke, he's actually running for the presidency. He is the fr- he, yeah, yeah this yeah, fellow exactly. Shadow. He Part is the, the French Green Party candidate for presidency. The rival of Macron in the presidential is an MEP. So the Green Group involving all the different nominated him as their speaker in response to Macron. And, and yeah, booty cover, uh criticising him, but um, there's been criticism of the fact that. Um, some people have, have 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 felt that the French shouldn't have taken the presidency mm. just now because there's, they have yeah, elections, elections in April, and they're obviously using the presidency yeah, yeah. Uh, for the election. Macron is uh, is using it big time as a mm. platform uh, for his election campaign, yeah. mm. and um, many people think that this shouldn't have been allowed mm. because it is actually unfair to all the other candidates mm. in France that he is actually going to use all the publicity that can be garnered mm. from uh, the French presidency in the European Union uh, during these months, uh, which is a perfect opportunity for him, obviously. Yeah, and I mean, it's interesting when the same thing happened in Germany, the Germans waived their right to take the presidency. They took it at a different time so that it wouldn't clash with the elections, but the French are using it. And it was a bit rich for them to give out about the green fella because that's given him a platform that he never had yeah. before, introducing him to a whole range of people strategically for the Greens. It's the right yeah. thing to do. But like, Macron. sure, that's what Macron was doing. So there's no, and the people yeah. giving out about the Green fella, the most were Macron's party, because actually your man was pretty good and he was striking a lot of blows. Now, he went on too much. Uh, a little bit and he was a bit too much in that direction but for the first bit he landed quite a few blows and to me like the criticism is a bit of a deflection because I mean the far right I mean the left your woman the man on Aubrey is the president of the left group so she always speaks at that so that's not really you know they couldn't really criticise that Um, so yeah but uh, interesting Um, and I think some of his points around Russia 
and Ukraine were interesting enough. I mean, he was kind of at pains to talk about, you know, dialogue with Russia as well, which is interesting in the context of the meeting we had earlier in the week in relation to Ukraine. Yeah, well, and, and we obviously, we pointed it out, uh, both of us got speaking time. Uh, there was a meeting uh, uh, of the Foreign Affairs and Security and Defence combined on Monday night. Yeah, with uh, Burrell. Uh, the, the High Representative for Foreign Affairs for the European uh, Parliament. <clears throat> but um, it was it was a big meeting and there was about 40 MEPs involved. I mean, even though only 14 people uh, were allowed to speak, uh, of which myself and Claire were two. And um, we were pointing out that it's just, I mean... You have a whole lot of people in the European Parliament saying, oh, we need to give more arms, we must need to give more arms to the Ukrainians uh, in case the Russians attack them. But yet, uh, the Germans have refused to give arms to the Ukrainians. Now, uh, and both the, the French and German defence ministers came out against Borrell at the weekend because Borrell was uh, linking the opening of Nord Stream 2, which is the gas pipeline that's been built uh, uh, in the sea to bring gas directly from Russia to Germany. And it has it's finished, but it hasn't opened yet. And there's been a lot of opposition from the Americans to it opening. Mm. And obviously, a lot of the East Europeans have been given out about it because what this means is that the pipeline that presently comes through Ukraine will be... Uh, defunct and and rightly so because there's huge leakage in the pipe plus of course the Russians were paying several billion every year to the Ukrainians for transit rights and then on top of that the Ukrainians were robbing the gas uh, uh, from the pipeline so there's been uh, a concerted effort by the Americans uh, to stop this pipeline and Burrell was more or less saying that if Russians do anything in Ukraine, that's directly linked uh, to Nord Stream 2. There'll be no Nord Stream 2 opening, more or less, if the Russians move on Ukraine. But the German and French defence ministers came out and said, hold on a minute now, uh, we should be talking about uh, peace in Ukraine and solving the issues there and stop linking it with Nord Stream 2. It's nothing to do with it. It's a real indication of the complexities and the difficulties facing the European Union in its efforts to forge a common defence policy. Uh, You know, they really are, you know, we made the point that absolutely every single person in that room was fed up with Burrell at the end of that meeting for about 50 different reasons. He managed to make everyone fed up with him, like the, the oh, way yeah, he oh, responded. Yeah, like, most from of the, the, most, the, the ones who were the most biggest advocates of NATO to the biggest advocates of a European army to the biggest promoters of it's peace. actually impressive. Yeah, it was brilliant uh, achievement. Like everyone was, was really sick of him, like, you know, but that's the difficulty that the European Union has. I mean, you have the Baltic states there, uh, the former Soviet states clamouring for a greater tightening and a, and a squeezing of the neck of Russia in this situation. You have some countries even using the the whole issue of sort of, oh, well, we shouldn't be dependent on gas. You know, we're supposed to be moving away. And obviously we've been some of the biggest promoters of that. But a lot of the people saying that are the very people who've no problem with using fossil fuels uh, in general. They're just making that point for um, opportunist reasons. And the, the truth of the matter is, is that the United States are looking as well for a market for their filthily fracked gas, 
which they want to sell to Europe, which would be of a far greater hazard to um, the environment than using the Russian gas as we move towards renewables and so on. So uh, a lot of interesting points there. But like that, so it's purely in Americans' economic interest, but it's not in the citizens of Europe's interest because that gas will be far more cheaper than the gas or far more expensive than the gas coming from Russia in any case. People probably don't realise it but the amount of US frack gas that's been used in Europe has been increasing, increasing and increasing in the last couple of years and while the Russian gas, I mean we've been arguing that that we need to get rid of using gas a lot sooner than we're planning but at the, at the moment, we have no choice only users, and the Russian gas is cheaper and a lot cleaner than what the Americans have to offer. And when I put it to Burrell, that I said, uh, has, have, have, are you doing any analysis of the difference to the environment using this uh, filthy frack gas from America as opposed to the Russian gas? And his reply was, have you heard of the Green Deal? And I said, yeah, I said, and where, where's the connection between the Green Deal, I says, and the, and the filthy frack gas from the US? I mean, it was like as if it doesn't, he doesn't even understand what he's talking about. He was really, really disappointing, he was. Yeah, and I saw one of the things that was gas was one of his replies was this guy brought up about NATO and a horrific contribution from an Austrian guy saying, well, we're from a neutral country. But I mean, what's the problem with NATO? Like, what is wrong with NATO? I'm going, oh, for God's sake. But anyway, his whole point was, was that that the Russians had been making the point, which they have, and which is absolutely true from their perspective, that the idea of NATO encroaching onto their borders is uh, is being provocative to them and that their moves are a defensive move because they don't want NATO on their borders and they've been previously promised that that would never happen, that if you like, the West was being aggressive by moving to that place um, and Burrell's answer to that was yes there has been a lot of Russian disinformation undermining uh, NATO kind of thing you know in other words Russia's political position which is they don't want NATO on their border that it's a threat to their security which is their position instead of saying okay I can understand where that person is coming from I mightn't agree with them but that's where they're coming from and let's try and explain that and and talk down their fears he's calling that disinformation and that's the new thing now yeah anybody who doesn't agree with you it's disinformation and uh, I mean on that note we we do have an event next Saturday the 29th in the new theatre in uh, Temple Bar uh, where we're launching a study that the left group did on this so-called um, foreign interference and disinformation, which actually is the new battleground for um, kind of, you know, getting people pumped up for war. You talk about cyber threats, hybrid, hybrid threats and disinformation. And it's all about changing the narrative in a very much context of, you know, talking up Russiaphobia and so on. So if people want to come to that, you're very welcome. Three o'clock yeah, on Saturday. I mean, you could just... I mean, the idea that the Russians would be concerned about uh, Ukraine joining NATO is very real. And they have every right to be concerned by it because if Ukraine are brought into NATO, that will allow the US to put nuclear missiles in Ukraine close to Russia. 
And that's a massive concern for them. The same as when the Russians moved into Cuba in 1962, and Kennedy was the president in America at the time, obviously the Americans went nuts to did because it was too close to have Russian nuclear weapons uh, to America. So can you imagine today if the Russians were uh, going into Canada or going to Mexico? Could you just imagine the furore in America? And yet we... We, we actually almost were in denial of the fact that Russia would actually have security concerns about NATO uh, putting nuclear m- missiles in Ukraine close to Russia's border. And another point that we raised with Burrell is the Minsk II agreement, which uh, was drawn up in 2015 between the US, the EU, Germany, France, UK, uh, Ukraine and Russia. And agreements were made. And the agreements at that time were that Donbass would get regional authority, regional autonomy. Uh, But the Ukrainians haven't delivered on it. And the reason being is that the militias in Ukraine who were right-wing ultra-nationalists, I mean, many of them are associated with Nazism, these guys are having too much influence in the Ukrainian government And they have prevented the Ukrainian government from actually delivering on Minsk. And these very same ultra-nationalist right-wing groups have been armed by the Americans. And these are the guys uh, involved in much of the fighting in Donbass. So, I mean, it's just mad stuff. And Europe is in denial about the fact that the militias are a huge part of the problem in Ukraine. And this idea that all the problems in Ukraine are Russia's problem is nonsense because the actual problems within Ukraine itself is where all this trouble starts. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, somebody made the point like there are a huge amount of opposition leaders in Ukraine and journalists who are in jail and who are being, you know, locked up. And we always hear about this on the other side. But, you know, they put put Ukraine forward as sort of a bastion of sort of democracy and law and order, which it certainly isn't. And one of the interesting things is there have been repeated surveys done in Ukraine and the majority of people in Ukraine actually don't want foreign troops from anywhere. They don't want NATO and they don't want Russians in there. They want their own sovereignty and they don't want their own neutrality and they want to get on with everyone. That's what a majority of the Ukrainian people want good relations with Russia. They want good relations with America. They want good relations with the EU and that's what the EU should be pushing, not one camp, the NATO camp over another camp. Like. And people should realise that Zelensky, the, the present president at the moment, he was elected in 2018 on a ticket of speaking and doing business with the Russians and talking to everybody because he wanted peace in Ukraine. And he got 75% of the vote on a platform of doing business with the Russians. Yet the Americans have prevented him from going to that space. And now we have a stalemate and the wheels are just coming off in Ukraine. Uh, There's millions after leaving the place. Mm. Uh, There's huge poverty Mm. and... Uh, there's huge corruption in it and Europe has done nothing to help and that's a real sad part. Well, we made the point to the podcast last week that kind of Kazakhstan was the one that grabbed the headlines over the Christmas, but that was very much a flash in the pan. And, mm. and uh, I mean, it's something that we want to continue to follow. Even already, it's disappeared from the headlights, but that was never to imply that the biggest show in the European town is what's happening in Ukraine. It's incredibly dangerous for everyone and it's not going to go away. It is the dominant conflict of this year. Uh, and, you know, 
you know, we, we will be following it and featuring it regularly. So there was another couple of uh, significant votes this week. Um, from, Mick, from your perspective, there was the animal transport vote that's actually today. Um, that yeah. Garnered a bit of attention in Ireland as well. There was a couple of articles in our Farmers Journal in Agriland. Yeah, look, there's been... Um, a bit of disinformation. Yeah, I mean... It, it, Sponsored. Um, certainly a lot of it has amounted to disinformation and there's been a big... It's almost scare tactics mm. and the agricultural media at home have really bought into it. Now, it suits some of them. I mean, um, the IFA, for example, um, they have an awful lot of people lobbying all the time and it's part of their job. Uh, to justify their existence, uh, to be exaggerating many of these issues, um, but it, it was about, it's about the movement of live livestock, mm. and there's uh, a report has been done uh, in the parliament, and it's going to be voted on in the plenary uh, today. Now, it will be passed, right? And but there's nothing very uh, really strong in the report. It doesn't ban live cattle uh, export or anything. But there's amendments that have been debated, and what happened was these, these amendments were part of the compromise amendments during the debate committee, and they didn't pass, right? And um, Renew and uh, Billy Kelleher uh, has put his name to them, and uh, Billy's reintroduced the same amendments again, and they'll be voted on today. Now, uh, I reckon that the, the, the amendments will pass this time, but there's been uh, a huge scare tactic about the significance of these two amendments because they're not near as significant as they've been portrayed. And I, I've been talking to farmers at home. I've rang different farmers and I said, what, what does this really mean? What does it amount to? And when I, I actually sent the report to them and I got them to read them and I was sure, I was, we went through the amendments and all. And they actually, uh, they, they couldn't understand how there was such a hullabaloo about it. But you see, when the media get involved in this kind of a thing, they don't go the, into the into the nitty gritty of what the amendments are actually really saying, and it's all just sort of um, headlines, headline yeah. stuff. And uh, oh God, this will be terrible. This there's livelihoods and uh, lives uh, at stake, which is actually not true, and uh, a lot a lot of scaring going on. Um, but look at uh, the both amendments. Uh, I'd say will will have. No problem passing today. I think, you know, and we, we met representatives of the IFA and it's interesting. We had a discussion yesterday on Digital Services Act and the internet and they said the biggest areas that get traction and get people are when you target people with fear and anger are the responses that get people most engaged in debate. And I think the debate on the animal transport has got a lot of the farming community into this corner of fear and anger. And that's the way they're responding, not on a rational basis, but on a sort of a, a basis of being pumped up on this. And I think it's important that, as you had said, Mick, that this is a report. It's not a piece of legislation. It's really just the Parliament's opinion at this particular point in time. The Commission can look at that or not. It's you know, moulding, I suppose, opinion as we go forward. And I mean, a lot of the farmers that we met yesterday were making the point that they look after their cattle and they don't want to see their um, calves being transported in bad conditions and that kind of thing. And I fully accept that that is the case. But my point back to that was, look, at I'm, 
you know, for me, I'm a vegan, like, so for me, that the fact that a calf would be transported comfortably and then end up getting killed at the end of it anyway is my problem. And that's a fundamentally different issue to theirs. Um, but, you know, there are, are big issues, I suppose, at stake here. And you've raised issues about the overproduction in, of the dairy herd and all of those issues are behind this as well. So there needs to be a rational and a big discussion about all of this. Well, OK. I mean, just for example, I mean, we, won't, it's, we haven't really got enough time to go into them all, right? But one of the amendments is about calls on the Commission to introduce support by peer-reviewed scientific studies, journey time limits for unweaned animals, right? So we're talking about moving unweaned young calves, right? But if, if you do the research, right, in Ireland, over 90% of the calves are weaned. They're not unweaned. Uh, but most of the calves that we're talking about in Ireland are from the dairy herd, and you have a whole lot of calves that are not wanted in the dairy from the dairy herd. You can't get the dairy herd has been increasing and increasing and increasing in Ireland, and I've been arguing against it since 20, against increasing it since 2015, and I've been attacked from left, right, and centre from the farming media at home for us, right? But what it amounts to is you can't get milk without having without calves, right? So now we have too much cows where the dairy industry uh, has gone too big we have more, too many animals on the island and uh, but when you end up then with calves that you don't want because the female calves uh, many of them are used to replenish the herd but the bull calf is surplus to requirements and it doesn't make for good beef because the Frisian cow that's been used for dairy is a cow uh, that's predominantly uh, good for producing milk isn't an animal that produces good meat. It's narrow in the shoulders, it's narrow in the behind and has a big belly. And it's not attractive uh, for producing good meat. But the, So the calves are sold young. So it's the bull calf from the Frisian herd that's, that's been sold young and it's been, so it's been transported, right? But in actual fact, all the calves are from the dairy herd which is the majority, way over 90% of the ones we're talking about, they are weaned. The majority of them are weaned in the first couple of days of being born. They get the bee stings from the cow and more often than not then they put on the powdered milk because it's actually uh, too expensive to give them the, the, the good milk of the cow because it's more lucrative to sell it. So in actual fact, we're, we're debating an amendment about the small number of calves that are actually unweaned. And I wouldn't mind, but the majority of the unweaned calves actually come from the suckler herd. And the suckler herd produces the best meat in Ireland by far, but they're also the suckler farmers are more likely to be small and medium-sized farmers and they've got very little help from the Irish government or from the Department of Agriculture over the years. In actual fact, they seem to be getting less and less support, whereas the big buys in, in the big dairy are getting, are, are keep getting uh, more and more and more support from the government, from the EU. And the suckler uh, farmer who produces the good meat uh, is not being treated fairly. And here we are talking about an amendment, and, but you would think that this involved every yeah. calf in Ireland. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, it's, I'd say it's somewhere more close to the 5% of all the calves. Well, not only that, or that the rules were going to change tomorrow and every farmer in Ireland was going to be completely sort of thrown to the wolves on this, neither yeah. of That's which is that, absolutely yeah. the case. As you were saying, it's actually only a report. Yeah. And if, for example, the Commission decided to make legislation around this report, it wouldn't happen for a couple of years. But it did happen in two years' time. And what we have seen consistently since we came in here, any time a report 
uh, is taken up by the commission that comes from the parliament. They water it down. They make less change and less change and less change. And we've seen it in successive reports coming out of the parliament. So what the commission would eventually end up with, if they were to legislate on this, would be a watered-down version of what the parliament would vote on. Then it would go back into committee and then into the plenary in the parliament to be voted on after they changed it uh, a bit more. And then, even then, it still wouldn't be legislation. It would then go into trilogue, where it would, it would be the parliament, the commission and the council sitting around the table, more often than not in secret, and trashing it out and ending up with something that would eventually yeah. become law. And I think some of the points made by farmers were valid as well, that it's not the transport per se or the distance endured, it's the conditions in which that journey is being made by the livestock. Like So there's a lot of a bigger debate around this and it does come back to where is food produced and why are we transferring animals all over the world in the same way as why do we transfer other food? You made the point, Mick, about years ago there used to be abattoirs in every village and town and there was like, so there was no transport then because the meat was processed locally but this was then part of the big move to the big boys, the, the Larry Goodmans and the Key Pack and these fellows who were distorting a lot of the market anyway and, oh, yeah. you know, it's so there's a huge help. issue behind this and there's a, the focus on this is a bit of a red herring in some ways. I mean, my, my father had, had an abattoir. Mm. I mean, we had one at home and the, 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 there was an abattoir every, uh, I'd, I'd say every 10 kilometres mm-hmm. years ago mm-hmm. and the Department of Agriculture went out of its way to close them in order to facilitate the big buys so that all the killing was going to be done in, in just in a few, couple of small, uh, mm-hmm. couple of big centres around the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's only a few places actually processing the meat now because we've done away with all the abattoirs. So we actually created a situation where the farmer was obliged to move the animals a lot more. Mm-hmm. But as you say, how the animal is moved is actually paramount. One farmer said to me, I was asking him about moving calves that were only four weeks old. I, I said, is it really a problem for the calf? And he says, look what he says. If you had a fine big trailer, he says, and you put nice fresh straw in it and put four calves in it, he said, uh, they'd be as happy as Larry in it, he says, going for 50 or 100 kilometres. But he says, you put 12 calves in the same trailer where they're uh, shitting on top of each other and sweating. He says, then they're, they're being very badly treated and they're suffering. He says, it's all about how you treat the animal, he says, in the first place. But he says, who's going to monitor it, he says, if you bring in these rules? Who's going to check who's, uh, the trailer? He says, that's not a job for the guards. He says, that's a job for the Department of Agriculture. And he says, they can't do the jobs they have at the moment. He says, they're not going to go around the country uh, stopping trailers on the road to see, oh, how, how, how far is this trailer moving? Where's it going? Um, how many are in it? And God knows what. That's not going to happen. Well, I think it's a very interesting discussion and we should definitely return to it because the guards have power in relation to animal cruelty, which they never deal with normally. And sure, we know the department that the Minister for Agriculture has one of his senior civil servants who's been convicted of animal cruelty and there's been no problem there. So it's, yeah, it's a huge that, issue and that, we will return to it. That's a shocking story, uh, yeah. uh, which um, Pat Fitzpatrick uh, has been raising... Um, for the last couple of years. Yeah, and we will... No, I think we'll return to it because yeah. it's an issue that really uh, enrages people. <laughs> We'd be wrong to finish by not mentioning the oh, big sorry. legislative file of the Digital Services Act, which um, was going through the Parliament and obviously trumpeted and lauded it as the yeah. European Union being the best regulators in the world. We're not like the authoritarians in uh, the East. We're not like the free marketeers in the West. For the first time now, we're regulating the 
internet. Yes, so you, you spoke on this file and you... I kind of summed up the bigger picture when I got to speak. I think the promise of the young internet wasn't just that it would connect us all together, but rather that it would enhance our access to knowledge, liberate information from monopolies, democratise our societies and move power from the centre into communities and the periphery. And I think the fact that we have this legislation is really signalling our recognition that we're very far removed from those utopian ideals. Because rather than decentralising, we've seen the growth of massive internet monopolies who amass unimaginable wealth by abusing their positions. Rather than empowering individuals and communities, we now live in a dystopian regime of state and corporate mass surveillance. And instead of fostering a healthy public sphere, our online activity takes place in privately owned spaces where users are manipulated by abusive search and advertising algorithms and research in public discourse is distorted and polarised. Now, the Digital Services Act is a start in addressing these problems, but it's a really inadequate start. Real opportunities have been squandered here. A ban on targeted advertising is of paramount importance and I encourage people to support the amendment in that regard. The privatisation of censorship is a mistake that our societies will be paying for well into the future. We should be forcing the platforms to be interoperable, to give power back to internet users. And the language on mandatory identification falls well short of what is necessary to respect the rights and online safety of sex workers. So it's all very well in us trying to regulate some of the huge harms being generated by digital capitalism. But we've got to look at the root of the problem, which is a profit at all cost business model driven by the accumulation and trade in our personal data to sell products. Unless we address that, the problems will continue. I mean, look, uh, um, this, there was a huge kickback from big tech, mainly the giants who are based in the US, to prevent the regulation of the internet. What we got is a little bit of regulation. It is a start indicating the problems that are there but not enough so um, yeah we can return to it again but it's certainly not uh, what it was lauded. We'll be yeah. back in uh, Brussels next week where it's security and defence security and defence and security and defence <laughs> And foreign affairs and foreign affairs and foreign affairs uh, Yeah it's a mad week yeah, next week an and a shadow mad week. week my god yeah crazy anyway this is life Okay see you Good luck Au revoir